I think the other thing is creating awareness around when am I going to the sugar? What am I looking for? And is it giving me my desired result? And chances are it's not. I mean, it never made my kids stop screaming. It didn't make my life any more peaceful. It made things worse. Um, so I think really to build that awareness around why am I doing this? What am I looking for? And then we can start to create that freedom of this is what I need instead. to You Need a Counselor podcast. My name is Julie Johnson. I am the president and founder of Heart and Solutions. Uh, we have seven physical locations here in Iowa, offices where you can get outpatient mental health counseling. Uh, and then we also serve those areas for in-home behavioral health counseling as well. I'm Krissa. I am the vice president at Heart and Solutions in charge of our behavioral health department, where we go in home and work with kids ages four to 18 on different behavioral skills. And we can also see them at school, um, in the office or telehealth right now as well. And this is our podcast, You Need a Counselor. So we are designed for people curious about counseling, but have barriers keeping them from experiencing the benefits of counseling. Our mission is to share stories about counseling, good, bad, and indifferent, and spread the message that everyone can benefit from mental health and behavioral health counseling services. Uh, so we post on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Central. So wherever you are in the country, batch up your least favorite task. So for me, that is putting away laundry. I do not like putting away laundry. <laughs> five o'clock Central, I am putting away laundry. My five-year-old is folding towels <laughs> and matching socks, and we are getting it done for the week. Um, so batch up your laundry or batch up whatever unpleasant task you have, um, and go ahead and put the podcast on. That gives you the entire week. So we post on Sunday night. Uh, that gives you the whole week to get in touch with your counselor, um, get in touch with our guest uh, for that week so that you can get signed up for services. Okay, so today we have a guest. We have Melissa Rolfs. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yes, thank you for being here. So um, I'm going to brag on Melissa a little bit. So she is a certified holistic health and life coach, um, specializing in working with women on so many things. So sugar addiction, which sugar addiction, you guys, is a real thing. Um, so sugar addiction, uh, stress eating, emotional eating, um, also challenges with uh, with body image, challenges with um, accepting ourselves and who we are, but also uh, helping people and helping women especially to work through some of those uh, patterns, behaviors, thought processes that come with that, that addiction around food, um, going to food for comfort, things like that. So we're really excited to hear about that. Um, we're also excited to hear about Melissa's journey because Melissa has been through these kinds of challenges herself um, and emerged the other side and is now walking people through uh, that journey that she's been on. So we're really excited to hear about that. Um, Melissa is also the owner and founder of Free to Be Coaching. So free and then two, number two, B, the letter B, coaching. Um, and so I was saying it reminds me of the peanut butter. <laughs> so if that helps you remember free to be coaching, um, Melissa had it first. However, <laughs> the free to be. Okay. So it's like that peanut butter, that mixed peanut butter that you add water to and it doesn't have to uh, So it's kind of fitting. All right. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're excited to ask you some questions. Can you tell us about your own journey yeah. with sugar yeah. addiction and with food? 
Yeah, absolutely. So sugar was my go-to and it's not, you know, until recently I can pinpoint that it started in childhood. Um, I remember being a little girl and my real dad um, died when I was two. He was murdered. So I have trauma in my childhood. And I think for me, I learned to use sugar to self-soothe. So around six years old, I was putting Pop-Tarts and cookies and candy and sugary treats in my bedroom and unbeknownst to my family. But then one day there were little furry rodents that pooped on the bed and pulled on me. So they blew my cover. So for me that, you know, the, I guess the addiction started because of childhood trauma and it continued throughout my life. I remember being, you know, overwhelmed and stressed in college because there were all these expectations and classes and all of these deadlines. And so what do I do? I turn to food, continued after college. It continued after I got married and had kids. And it really was this cycle of me turning to sugar to not handle my feelings because I didn't know how to handle my feelings. I was just so full of things and I didn't know what to do. So I stuffed with sugar. Absolutely. And I'm finding that this is such a, uh, a growing uh, addiction that, mm-hmm. that we're having in our society um, is this addiction to sugar. And I think that's because sugar and simple carbs, they are like one of the last acceptable vices. Like really? they are one of the last like socially acceptable, like, well, yeah, of course we're going to eat ice cream to do that. Or of course we're going to celebrate with cake. Um, whereas like we don't celebrate with cigarettes anymore. Right? Like, we don't celebrate <laughs> right. with uh, people used to just like use cocaine uh, all the right. time. And so uh, we don't, we don't do that stuff anymore. Um, it's not as socially acceptable, even as we were growing up, like every restaurant had ashtrays, right. And every restaurant had those little like cigarette things. And that was just what you did to hang out and to relax and unwind. And in our lifetime, we've seen that change on nicotine and cigarettes. Um, but we haven't seen that change on food. Food seems to be such a socially ingrained, um, coping, and, uh, and it seems like a socially acceptable one, but it, it kills more people every year than cigarettes do. Right. Um, so are, are you seeing that it, kind of that social norm and having that affect people that you work with? 100% because Julie, as you mentioned, I mean, it's socially acceptable as a grown mom. I'm not going to go out and get lit and then drive <laughs> home because I, I could end up in jail, right? Like that is not it's not legal. It's not, you know, I just think sugar and food is so acceptable, as you said. And it's something that as a society we turn to, I mean, what do we do? We celebrate with food. We potty train. I was potty trained with candy. I don't know if you guys were, but, and then I turned around and did that to my kids. Like we are just taught this pattern of food is comfort. It's celebration. It's all of these things. And even, you know, as a mom now, I have to rack my brain sometimes. Okay, what can I do to celebrate my kids and do something fun that doesn't involve like ice cream or cookies? Because I don't want them to have that that association of every time we celebrate, we have sugar because I I don't want to recreate that. So yeah, it's totally just as you said. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much um, like food for fun. It types mm-hmm. of things like food has become entertainment. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, mm-hmm. in our society, you know, like oh, let's do something. Let's go for ice cream, like you said, mm-hmm. or let's do something. Let's make cupcakes. Let's you know, and it becomes an activity um, mm-hmm. as opposed to whoops, as opposed to a uh, so, like something that we do to stay alive, right? Like to nourish our bodies, and yeah. 
the hard thing about it, Julie, is we do need food to survive. So it's not something that we can just let go of because we need food. I think that's the double-edged sword of it, right? Is that, okay, I need this in order to survive. But I think the question that we need to ask that is, is it the best choice for me right now? And is it going to help me reach my goals of being who I want to be and how I want to show up in the world? You know, the the idea of, yeah, we need food to survive. That that really got me for a really long time um, when, you know, when I was trying to break some of these cycles. And uh, one thing that somebody said to me one time was that, because um, I would say, well, it's not the same as alcoholism because alcoholics, like you don't need to drink alcohol to survive, but yep. you do need to uh, eat food to survive. And I, I would get like, it's not fair, right? Because I wish I was an alcoholic instead, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which sounds insane right but that's that's how I would feel about it um and then somebody said to me one time well alcoholics don't need to drink alcohol to survive but they need to drink liquids to survive so alcoholics don't need to drink gin and vodka to survive they need to drink water to survive um and juice or you know whatever and so same thing for sugar addiction like we don't need to eat you know donuts to survive we need to eat like fruit to survive and vegetables and stuff. And so in that way, it is really similar um, where, yeah, for those other addictions, like we do need to do that stuff to survive. And uh, smoking is kind of like breathing, you know? I mean, part of the the cessation, part of the ritual of smoking and what feels calming is that breathing, taking deep breaths, is calming (laughs) and we need to take deep breaths. And when we smoke, we're intentionally taking deep breaths. And so aside from the nicotine, just the ritual of that is calming to us, um, to us physiologically. So no, we don't need cigarettes to to survive, but we need to breathe to survive. So in that way, they they have some similarities. It just, uh, it took me a long time to see those similarities (laughs) because it felt like, well, food is different you know? Yeah. 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 Well, and I think it is in the sense that there maybe isn't the stigma with, you know, food as there is maybe with the drinking or the cigarettes. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I think too, in terms of recovery, like I could rattle off three or four programs related to alcohol addiction and maybe even nicotine, but what is there for food overeaters anonymous? What if, what if you don't overeat, you just eat too much sugar. I mean, it's, it's kind of an interesting, you know, perspective to look at all three of those and see how they differ societally in those 12-step programs definitely there is room in there but yeah I mean just like with alcohol there are people who are heavy drinkers and are not addicted to alcohol Mm -hmm. Um, and if they have a good reason like if the doctor says you need to stop doing that they can do it like okay great I don't want to die of alcoholism yeah I'm going to do that right my liver is going to shut down if I don't Mm -hmm. great Uh, and then for other people that's not a choice, right? Like they need those programs. Um, and the same thing is true with sugar. Um, mm-hmm. Some people are heavy eaters. Like my husband is a heavy eater and like, but he leaves food on the, I don't understand him. Like he'll, <laughs> leave, he'll like eat a sandwich and there'll be like a crust of bread with mayonnaise on it. And he will just like leave it on there and then like throw away the plate with food on it. And I'm like, what are you doing? (laughs) I don't get it. Like, right. Like it doesn't make sense to my brain. Um, And that tells me that like, he's not the same as me, right? Like we're different in that Mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So what kinds of, um, so when somebody works with you on their sugar addiction or on, you know, just making these changes in their life for themselves, uh, what kinds of things do you do? What can somebody kind of expect when they work with you? You know, I think the main thing to identify is why do you want to break free from sugar? Like what will having that do for you? Because a lot of times, Julie will set a goal and will say, oh, I want to, you know, look good in my swimsuit this summer. And that's fine. That's a really great goal. But is that going to be powerful enough to sustain you when the sugar is calling your name and when you feel like your kids are screaming and you need to eat the Oreos because... You're going to go crazy if you don't like, is that enough? So I think the first thing is to really understand why we're doing this so that we have that foundation that's strong and it's going to support us because it's not easy. We're giving something up that we have gotten into the habit of turning to, and we need to learn a new way of being. So I think that's really the first thing. I think the other thing is creating awareness around when am I going to the sugar? What am I looking for? And is it giving me my desired results? And chances are it's not. I mean, it never made my kids stop screaming. It didn't make my life any more peaceful. It made things worse. Um, so I think really to build that awareness around why am I doing this? What am I looking for? And then we can start to create that freedom of this is what I need instead. With diet culture, it feels like that primary motivator is like, how am I going to look at, you know, this event? How am I going to look at my reunion? How am I going to look at whatever? And like that sometimes feels like that primary motivator. And like you said, it's not enough. Um, and, and looking at those other pieces of like, okay, but how is it impacting like my lifespan and how is it impacting my ability to connect with the people around me? Um, because like, I mean, I think almost everybody listening can relate with the idea of like sugar coma, right. Or like a food Mm -hmm. coma when you, you come into that, right. Or like a food hangover, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you have that and, everything feels hard when you're in that. Um, and it's hard to connect to other people. So a lot of times like with sugar, we'll get more irritable. Um, we'll have more difficulty concentrating. We'll have more difficulty. And so like those things like, Oh man, in six weeks, I'm going to want to look good at the street again or whatever. Like that, that feels like motivational intense, but it's, it's not strong enough, but things like, you know, I, my kids deserve to have a mom that's present you know, um, and my husband deserves to have a life that's like not stopping at him for something that is not his fault. Uh, Right. So those kinds of things, that is true motivation. So I love that you look at the why and you look at the purpose Mm -hmm. of those things. Well, we have to, it's the foundation of everything. And I think that's where a lot of programs, not intentionally perhaps, but I think people are led astray because, you know, that it's more of a short-sighted goal of, oh, I'm going to you know, I don't want to say starve myself, but I'm going to withhold food so that I look good for this event. But it, it does so much health damage along the way. It's like they're, what they're going for isn't even healthy and it's not sustainable and it does more harm than good. And so we've really got to get to the why and figure out the greater impact on our overall life. Cause that's, what's going to make us change. Change is hard. Who wants to give up sugar? It tastes really good. I mean, let's be honest, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I know in your bio, you talked about, you know, working with women to help them to, uh, to feel more comfortable in who they are Mm -hmm. and who maybe like either God or their higher power has created them to be like who they're designed to be meant to be. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that kind of that acceptance piece? Yeah, absolutely. So we're all different, right? Like God made us unique. We're not one size fits all. You're different from me. I'm different from you. You shared that about your husband, like you're different, right? So why do we 
think that what worked for somebody is going to work for me. Like we've been fed this mentality of one size fits all what works for one works for all. And it totally negates who we are and that we're different. And so I think the key is to really identify who you are and what season of life you're in and how things are going to work for you and what's not going to work for you. What's not going to serve you and be okay with that. And I think that's, you know, the biggest thing is we don't take time to pause and ask ourselves those questions. Like, why do I want this? What do I need? What's going to serve me and work for me right now based on where I am? And those are really important questions. Do you find with your clients that, you know, those social norms, those customs, like those, you know, traditions that revolve around food, Halloween is coming up. Halloween is a food holiday, but even it's a sugar that, holiday. So is, yeah. so is Thanksgiving and so is Christmas and so is yep, New we Year's. This like, nice quarter. Yeah. And so is Valentine's Day and so yeah. is Easter. Like every, <laughs> every ending. Yep. Like, there's always something. holiday is a food holiday uh-huh. um yeah. and and it's amazing how deeply those those uh traditions kind of get mm-hmm. caught up into our identity as well mm-hmm. um and so like who am i if i don't eat um you know if i don't do halloween things if we don't like make halloween cupcakes or like mm-hmm. you know there's about to be every mom in this country <laughs> is ready for this like influx of candy that's going to be in our house coming up uh, at the end of this month. And when I became a mom, it was like, whoa, this is a lot. And you go to Easter egg hunts with them and the, you bring home just like bags of parades, everything. There's always candy in this house. Um, and so, you know, those social norms and it with the holidays coming up, especially like, who am I? If I go to Thanksgiving dinner with the family and I don't eat what the family is eating, right? Or what, who am I if I go to the Christmas parties and I don't eat Christmas cookies? Like Christmas cookies are a big deal. Yeah. So uh, how do you work with your, with your clients on kind of overcoming those social norms as well, setting boundaries for ourselves? Yeah, that's actually a form of self-sabotage because there are three main types of sabotage I work with women on. One is something always seems more important, which I think most moms are guilty of, right? Like everything comes before us. Um, The second one is desiring acceptance. And exactly, it's exactly that, Julie. It's, you know, if I go to Thanksgiving dinner and I tell my Aunt Margaret that I can't have the potatoes and I can't have this and this, and then she kind of guilts you into making you feel bad and, oh my gosh, you're wasting away, blah, 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 and you give in and you have it. That's that looking for acceptance. That's that desiring acceptance, which is a form of self-sabotage. So it's really setting clients up for success so that they know, again, why they're doing this, what their goal is. They've got anchors that are connecting them to that goal so that they stay on track um, and really identifying that why behind the why and focusing on the bigger picture of what they're getting out of this when we're done. Because, you know, one day isn't going to trip people up, but it's when we continually do the same thing over and over and we have those habits that don't serve us, that's where we get stuck. So it's really kind of reprogramming and retraining our habits, which is starts in our mindset. (laughs) So that's kind of how I work with women through that. And we talk about, you know, which sabotage are you most likely to fall into and really setting them up for success and kind of having a plan of how to handle that because, it's going to happen. It just is, you know, you might be unprepared and that would feel like sabotage. So it's kind of giving them tools so that they're not caught off guard and, and sabotaging. Yeah, absolutely. That preparing um, is so important, right? Like even now, I mean, we're, we're two months out from new year's already. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the next two months are, are those social customs uh, of, of those things. And now is really the time to be kind of 
mentally preparing ourselves for those things and being able to set those things up ahead of time. You know, I, I remember the first time I said to my mother-in-law, like, I'm going to bring my own food with me at Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I was scared out of my mind. <laughs> and she was like, oh, you never worry about that. You do whatever you want to do. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Glad that I just like freaked out about this for two weeks, <laughs> you know? And then afterwards, it was like, no big deal. And that was just what we did. Um, and, but doing it was so scary because mm-hmm. it, it has nothing to do with her. She's mm-hmm. wonderful. I right. know that, right? But it was that like not wanting to disturb age tradition and not wanting to like stick out and be weird um, you know that acceptance and, wanting the acceptance part yeah. and wanting to do what other people are doing and it is challenging but you know like for me it was that like my my liver was going to shut down not from alcoholism <laughs> sugar, which is weird um but you know I've got a five-year-old and at the time I had a three-year-old and I was like I need to be alive for her. Like Mm -hmm. the second symptom of this, the first symptom is fatigue. Like who's not fatigued. And then your second symptom is you die. Like that is, that is what fatty liver disease does. And so I was like, I need to be alive for her. And so if I'm alive for my mother-in-law to be mad at me over like Turkey, okay. Like I'm, I'm okay with that because being alive to like watch my daughter, you know, grow up and all like that is, that's what's most important. So I think you're exactly there of like going back into what is my purpose for this? Like, why does this matter? Um, It's because I want to see her grow up. (laughs) I want to be there for her. Um, And if that means that my mother-in-law is mad at me over Turkey, like, okay, like, so be it. I had to be able to accept that, accept that outcome, accept that like, I wasn't going to change her mind if she was mad at me. Like that's, she can be mad at me. And that that is okay. Um, that was a hard thing to do, I would say. Yeah. But you have a powerful why and you did it and you found the freedom and look at how well that turned out for you. So kudos, because that is hard. That's very hard, especially when it's not maybe even your family of origin. So yeah, when it's when it's your in-laws, especially. <laughs> um, but also, you know, your your family being able to say things to sometimes your family of origin is can be harder in other ways. Mm-hmm. So um, because your family of origin knows what your favorite foods are and they have memories attached to you with those foods. So, you know, if Krista was like, I'm not eating salt anymore and was not going to eat mashed potatoes anymore. Like her family would be like, what the heck, man? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, I mean, those are because of those past experiences and, and we can't use the kinds of um, reasons that we can give to, to maybe like coworkers, right? At a potluck or something where we say like, ooh, that kind of makes me sick to my stomach when I eat that. Or like, I don't like that or whatever it is. Like those things that we kind of have prepared when we don't want to get into everything about it. We can't do that with our family because they know <laughs> that you like that food. <laughs> They know that you've eaten it before, you know, things like that. So that can be um, so much trickier. And I think that 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 big part of it is just being able to say, like, I can be okay if people are upset about this. Like, I can be okay. And saying things like if they're mad at me over turkey, like, okay, (laughs) because it does, it breaks that down a little bit. It makes it a little less scary um, to do that. So, yeah, I love that. So did you have somebody that worked, that you worked with 
as you were going through these things to kind of help you in the way that you're helping other people? Yes and no. I mean, I feel like my journey was so long and drawn out and complicated that might be by me going to school and doing what I do. I can really condense it for people because I mean, as I look back, like I tried all the things, but I didn't understand that the root and the reason why I was doing it was because I didn't know how to handle my feelings. And if I had known that, I could have sought that out instead of the Weight Watchers or the Quick Fix or this or that, because I just thought it was weight. I didn't know that I was an emotional eater and I was sugar addicted. Um, talk about disassociation and unawareness. But you know, as I came into that, I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And then I was able to work through it. So yes and no, not to the extent that I wish I had had. Um, Cause I had people spirit, you know, sporadically through my journey, but not anybody that really kind of did what I did for people. Yeah. Cause we, you know, we can kind of get there on our own. We can make progress on our own, but having that person that's been through it or that has, you know, helped other people through it, it, it can shorten the time period that it can shorten kind of that trial and error it can, uh, you know, things that they kind of lucked into because of experiences that they had where they were like, Oh, this happened. And then I realized this was useful. I could do this again. Right. And so things that other people have kind of lucked into just from things happening or things going wrong, even um, we get to use and without things going wrong, <laughs> we can put those into place um, and learn from other people's experiences. So um, like you said, it just condenses that process so much to have somebody kind of guiding us and we can't be objective about our own feelings, unfortunately. So, you know, I can be, fearful about something or I can be resentful about something or angry about something and not even know that mm -hmm. I am because I use like my go-tos are absolutely sugar, salt, um, and then uh, busyness. <laughs> busyness yeah. is my big, like busyness now, especially that is my big one. Um, and that is what I go to when I, because I can't do salt anymore. So I do busyness. And I do new projects and stuff like that. And, um, and it's, it's the same, it's the same as a substance. Um, mm -hmm. So behavioral addictions, gambling, right? Uh, busyness, workaholism, um, things like that. Those are shopping. shopping. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Overspending, stuff like that, like that. They're all addictions because they mm -hmm. are, where do we go for comfort as opposed to those direct <laughs> What is the way around? <laughs> um, and and there's so many things that give us that that feeling um, for six minutes, right? <laughs> it's like it gives us that feeling for six minutes. So if I buy something and I'm like, "Ooh, this makeup's so pretty, I feel great," it wears off after six minutes. And uh, and food is the same way; it wears off after six minutes, and then we have to go do it again. But uh, when we can talk about the fear, we can talk about the resentment when we can process through like, oh, <laughs> like I've got stuff that's causing me to have this fear. So it's not that like the, this thing happened and now like I'm not in control of how I feel about it or how I respond to it. Like I am in control about how I think about it and I am in control about how I respond to it. And that's a good feeling. Um, and knowing that, you know, when there's a fear or when there's a resentment or when there's any kind of unpleasant feeling other than peace, um, that I can do something with it. And that something is lasting. I mean, it doesn't last 
all the time, but it lasts longer than six minutes. <laughs> that's for sure. Because I think we as a society have gotten really good at kind of buffering our feelings, whether it's through what we mentioned, social media, like there's so many ways that we can numb or buffer those feelings instead of really kind of working through them and, and healing if we need to, or asking for forgiveness or whatever that looks like. But you know, I think it's really about identifying the feeling and what we need to do on our part instead of numbing or buffering it. Cause that's easy to do. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are some ways that you work with your, um, your clients on? So once they've identified like, Oop, I've got feelings <laughs> I do now, uh, with those feelings, what are some, some kinds of things that you have your clients do? Yeah, I think it's just giving people a safe space to talk. You know this from what you do. Um, just, you know, creating that safe environment where people can share how they're feeling, what's really going on and not be judged and just treated with compassion. Um, I love to help people replace judgment with curiosity because we're oftentimes our own worst critic. So if we can learn, you know, maybe where that judgment is creeping in and we can stop it and we can replace it with curiosity, that's really, really powerful. Um, so just kind of helping them identify what keeps them stuck and what makes them want to numb and buffer those feelings and what could we do instead. So again, it's kind of coming up with, this is how I cope. And these are things I can do instead. And also identifying what triggers you because there's something that triggers us to want to go back to the sugar or the salt or the shopping or whatever that is. And so really helping people identify those triggers so that when they are going into those situations where the triggers are they're prepared and they have a plan in place because there's nothing worse than knowing that you're going to be triggered, but not knowing what to do going into the situation. Cause then you're anxious, you're overwhelmed, you feel stuck. Like it's not a good place to be. So it's a lot of preparation and planning and kind of pinpointing things that, that people need. Absolutely. So do you ever find with clients that there are mental health components to what's going on with them and, and, where, you know, a mental health counselor would be kind of a good complement um, with these things. Cause I'll tell you, like, I've been seeing a mental health counselor since I was 13. Um, I am, I believe in it. <laughs> like I know it works because it helped me so much when I was 13. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I still struggled with this my entire life. And so mm-hmm. I know that they're not mutually exclusive, right? That both are beneficial and useful and they do work together um, so well. And so once we have like both components kind of working, uh, then, then, you know, we can see kind of more of that progress and more of that self-actualization for our own goals. Um, so do you find that sometimes there are mental health components that come up that you're like, oh, okay, let's, <laughs> let's go work on that with somebody who's going to focus in on that while we focus in on these other behavioral pieces. I feel like coaching and counseling really do work well together because I feel like counseling is really kind of working through the past, working through some, some hurts, some, some wounds that have triggered you and maybe keep you in that place. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people need to do that in order to go forward. Like you have to work through your past and you have to have that healing in order to go forward. And I feel like that's what coaching does is we look at where people are now and help them get where they want to go. But we can't do that without looking at the past because our fact past affects our present. And so absolutely, there's a huge correlation. There's a huge connection. Um, A lot of 
the clients I tend to work with are like me and we're type A and we're a little bit on the anxious side. And, you know, we always feel like we need to be doing something or active or going or busy. And absolutely there have been times where I've said, you know what, I think counseling would be really beneficial for you in your work in this and what we're doing together, because you're going to get the better results because you've worked through this and now you're here and you can go there. (laughs) So absolutely. Absolutely. I think that like sometimes there's this idea of like coaching and counseling, like, well, why would I do both? But honestly, they are they're different, you know, like I have I have one body, but for like my sinus issues, I went and saw an ENT, you know, and like for my allergy issues, I see somebody else. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I don't rely on like one service to service all of my Mm -hmm. physical requirements, right? Like I see a dentist. I'm not like, well, I have an eye care specialist, so I don't need a dentist. Like I go to the dentist because I got teeth, right? So um, the same is true really with coaching because Mm -hmm. it's so important to have that team around you of people. And because everybody has their specialty and is working on that, just like with your body, like your dentist is working on your teeth, your mental health counselor is working on your mental health stuff. Um, but your coach is working on your goals, you know, and moving forward in that like real time, uh, in that real time check-in way. And so, um, those are really, they're both needed. And I think Mm -hmm. that that doesn't get said often enough, Mm -hmm. like, especially in this field, I feel like it doesn't get said often enough that, you know, uh, basketball players will have like multiple coaches because Mm -hmm. they've got coaches for different, like they've got like a layup coach and they've got a dribbling coach. Is that (laughs) a dribbling Um, coach? maybe third base coach right there's like hitting batting coaches right so even a baseball player will have multiple coaches even though it's to perform in the same way um and so you know the more advanced we kind of get in our desire for self-actualization and for uh you know being the best version of ourselves that we can be and being of the most service that we can be in the world um the, the more we get into that, the more specialized those coaches need to be um, and the more people we need on our team to support us. Yeah, it's a really beautiful partnership. I think the two together can be so powerful. Um, a little bit of my journey, I didn't share this, was I was diagnosed with PTSD. And the woman that diagnosed me, we started off in a life coaching relationship because I was looking for coaching at the time. I had done some therapy and I felt like I had moved along. And so I started meeting with her as a life coach. And she, ironically enough, was also a therapist, had PTSD herself, and is the one who said, Melissa, I think this might be what, I, what, what is happening with you. So what do you think about us going from the coaching to the counseling relationship? And I'm like, absolutely, bring it on. So I feel like they support each other so well. And you almost actually need both of them to really get where you want to go. At least I feel like I did, because I couldn't be where I am now if I hadn't gone through, through counseling and gotten that, that help. Absolutely. Absolutely. I feel the same way. Um, You know, like I said, I was in counseling for a very long time and it did benefit me, right? But not in this area. (laughs) It did not benefit me in this area. And so so it wasn't until I got specific support for that area, right, that I had those outcomes that I wanted. So um, yeah, absolutely. It's so important to have that team around you, you know, like as we, uh, we, we have accountants for tax questions, right? We, we don't go to our banker and ask about that stuff. Um, we have bankers for that. We have dog groomers for grooming our dogs. Like we do, we do all these things. We have all these different people on our team and that's what helps us to continue to kind of function 
in that way. So I love your example about um, working through PTSD because so many people have, uh, I, I love what you shared in the beginning about your story in terms of you know losing that primary attachment figure when you were two. Um, so my story is somewhat uh, similar in terms of that early childhood trauma. So uh, I was raised by my biological mother and father for a year and then uh, was adopted. And so like, that definitely for me, it took doing the work of the, the work that it sounds like you're doing. Um, it took doing that uh, to be able to make the association in my mind of like, oh, like food was security. <laughs> um, because when you're that age, food is security. Like what, you know, when I had my daughter, I was like, dude, all she needs is food. <laughs> like that's literally, she needs to be warm and, you know, safe, not get eaten by an animal. And then also she needs to have milk. Like that, that's all she needs. And that is what security is at those phases of life. Um, and so, you know, when we don't have those things, we look to those things that were still there. And when we lost our attachment security with our primary attachment figures, food was still there though. Like food continued to be there. And, um, you know, in my situation, uh, the, one of the primary reasons I was given up for adoption was because my parents were uh, in high school. They weren't allowed to work. It was Korea in the eighties. So they, you know, they were in school. They weren't allowed to work. Their parents were like, we have, we want nothing to do with you because why would you do that? <laughs> why would you have this baby? Right. Um, and so they didn't have any supports. And in, Korea at that time, there was no social supports. Like there was no DHS. There was no, there were no food banks, uh, things like that to kind of help with that. And so knowing that and hearing that um, as I was growing up, I associated food with attachment. So when my daughter was born, I was like, I need to be able to feed her. Like that's what, you know, and that became the thing that became that attachment. Um, and that became security. And so it took a long time to realize that. And because, because there's that surface level of like, well, food tastes good. <laughs> so that's why, but that's not the reason so many times, right? If it was just because it tasted good, we'd be like, well, dude, apples taste good, right? <laughs> like other things taste fine and taste good. Um, but it doesn't give us that same feeling as some of those other, some of those other foods do. So um, yeah, absolutely. Being able to work through that trauma and being able to say those stories out loud and being able to talk about them and go like, okay, I did experience that. I don't remember it, right? Like, I don't remember that stuff, but I know it happened. And I know that there are things that'll happen to me, like physiologically that I know is those things coming up in my body. Yes, right? yes. Food is such an integral part of our physiological makeup and, and the way that our body works and functions, um, that there is such a tight connection there. hundred um, percent. So. And the body keeps score and the body remembers are two great books on how trauma is stored in the body. And there's that muscle memory and our bodies are amazing. I mean, like the more research I do, I'm like, oh my gosh, like everything is so connected. But I think we're not taught that. We think that we're disconnected beings and we're eating to lose weight or to look a certain way, but it affects so much more than that. We just don't know. 
Yeah. I mean, the idea of being high, like a sugar high, the idea mm-hmm. of a sugar high, that's a real thing. Yeah. Guys. Like we say that about kids, you know, oh, they're on a sugar high. I remember like when we were kids, people would always say that, oh, you're on a sugar yeah. high. But it's a real high. Like that's a real drug that impacts <laughs> your your brain the same way as cocaine does. Like totally. it is a real drug. You are on an actual high. Um, and with any high, there's a crash um, that comes with it. And so, because we can't maintain the high, um, we just can't. So, but yet it's thrown at it for age. I mean, are... let's be honest. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? I mean, it reminds me, you know, like Coca Cola, before Coca Cola mm-hmm. was sugar based, it was mm-hmm. cocaine based. <laughs> and they would like, oh, you let's prescribe you some cocaine and you would go to parties and like fancy parties and do like a little snuff in the bathroom. <laughs> like, that was just what people did. And we've seen that with cigarettes like in our lifetime. I mean, in my lifetime, it was never a thing where it was like, oh, let's go drink some Coke and have some cocaine in our system for a pick-me-up, right? Like in my lifetime, that wasn't a thing, but cigarettes were, Mm -hmm. Um, for sure cigarettes were growing up. And so like, we've seen that kind of progression from like very, very acceptable, like basically in my grandma's day and in my parents' day, like it was weird if you didn't smoke, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and And then now it's weird if you don't, eat Halloween candy. It's weird if you don't eat turkey at Thanksgiving or if you don't eat, you know, Christmas cookies. Like it's weird if you don't do that stuff. But I think that if we look at those other industries, like they were the same exact way that this is now. So we might be moving in that direction. Let's hope. People were really mad when they took cocaine out of (laughs) Coca-Cola. They were mad about it (laughs) because they were addicted to it. You know, so when uh, when New York does these uh, these laws about, uh, you know, limiting pop sizes or soda sizes, yeah. if you're in New York, um, about limiting those soft drinks and, and stuff like that, that, that's part of it. That's kind of that similar, like having the no smoking indoors bans, right? People are mad about it because we're addicted to it. Um, and so you take away our addictive substance, like, of course, we're mad about it. Um, but then that perception does change given time. Yeah. Great. So if you could give a suggestion to one person who's on the fence about starting either counseling or coaching or both, um, what suggestion might you give that person? Just do it. I mean, I think we get so caught up in our heads, but I think if you could see the after effect of your journey, once you had started and you had gone through it, you would wish you had done it sooner. I mean, I just can't explain how it's changed me, how it's changed my family, how it's changed the way that I operate, like it's so powerful and transformative. I don't know why anybody wouldn't want that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, just do it. I love that. <laughs> and yeah, because it, it is kind of like ripping a bandage off, right? Like it feels like, oh, if I do this, it might make it better, but it also might make it worse mm-hmm. um, or it might hurt or be painful, the process of doing it, which like, yeah, it is. Um, but that outcome, right. And talking to people, talking to people like you who have gone through it and have benefited and how it's impacted your life and benefited your family um, are all just really, really great suggestions. So I'm Melissa Rolfs and I need a counselor. So do we. Amen. <laughs> so so do I we. think everybody That's does. Right. Let's just be yeah. honest. Absolutely. Okay. If you're listening to this, you need a counselor. (laughs) Absolutely. And you need a coach too. You need people in your life who are there to support 
you. And the more specific, the more specific, the more specified um, that means of support is, right, the more impactful that's going to be. So this idea that like, well, I've got a best friend that supports me. Okay, but they're they're going to be more effective, more supportive in your best friend role instead of trying to fill all these other roles that a counselor could fill or that a coach could fill or that your doctor should fill, right? So being able to have that specialized, that focus on one area and supporting you there, knowing that those other areas are being supported by the rest of your team is so, so important. So absolutely. So if you want to uh, connect with Melissa, if you heard some of your own struggles uh, in this episode and you feel like Melissa would be somebody to work with, free to be coaching. The number two, the letter B, coaching. Um, so uh, is what, do, what is your website? How can people find you? Yeah, free to be coaching. Just like you said, Julie, free the number two, the letter B, coaching.com. There it is. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Awesome. All right. Free to be coaching.com. Not the peanut butter. Um, but <laughs> related. That peanut butter doesn't have sugar in it. I will tell you. See, All right. So if you, there is a connection. If you are in Iowa um, and you are interested in mental health counseling services or in behavioral health counseling services for your kiddos in home, um, give us a call 800-531-4236 or heartandsolutions.net, any of our seven locations in Iowa. And like Julie mentioned at the beginning, we post every Sunday night at 5 p.m. Central. So save up that laundry or whatever chore you hate doing. Listen to us while you do that on Sunday nights. And then we can help prepare you to call a counselor or a coach to get set up with services that week too. Absolutely. If you're listening to this from another state, you can feel free to send us a Facebook message or a DM on Instagram at You Need a Counselor Podcast. Um, and we will help you get set up with somebody, a counselor in your state and in your zip code. So even if you're not in Iowa, know that you can message us and we will send you some uh, providers that you can connect with in your zip code. I'm Krista Hunt. And I'm Julie Johnson. And we need a counselor. And so do you. Bye. Bye.